0: Welcome to Cato Audio for July 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Steve Forbes puts health care front and center in economic debates. Representative Jeb Hensarling urges Congress to reassert its powers. Thea Brook knight walks us through the JOBS Act of 2012. And columnist Michael Mandelbaum discusses America's post-Cold War mission failure. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. Fifteen years ago, the United States went to war in Afghanistan shortly thereafter, went to war in Iraq. The United States is now at war in countries we aren't officially at war with uh, and we are periodically executing military operations such as bombing campaigns in seven countries. And uh, here to talk about – Restraint the possibility of returning to some restraint in foreign policy. Trevor Thrall, Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute and Ben Friedman, Research Fellow in Defense and Homeland Security Studies at the Cato Institute. Gentlemen, welcome.
1: Thank you thanks.
0: So uh, to begin here, uh, we've been through now three, well, two presidents that have uh, been at war for almost their entire tenures. So what does that mean for, The possibility of returning to a a boring world in which we're not uh, engaged in so many military
1: operations around the world? Well, Uh, on the one hand, the permanence of war and the experience of the wars uh, has created more support. Trevor can speak more to this than me, but it's created more support in the public, certainly, than there was a few years ago for uh, restraint in terms of countries were occupying or sending ground troops to uh... and in some cases even bombing so uh... the public uh... is more amenable to a degree of restraint than it was uh... on the other hand uh... there's a sort of a bipartisan uh... playbook as the president put it uh... a kind of operational code in washington dc that is is very hawkish and uh... that doesn't really seem to be withering uh... it doesn't seem likely that uh... whoever the next president is will be very different in terms of their proclivity to use force. And uh, it's not just war, it's also uh, the idea that U.S. military forces when deployed in alliances uh, or just patrolling have some sort of magical effect uh, to pacify the world. And one of the things we're doing in this project is to sort of try to combat uh, that view along with the ideas that have us fighting endless wars around the world.
2: Yeah, I agree with everything Ben just said. The good side of where we're at is that the public is tired of war. Uh, the downside is that uh, terrorist attacks like the unfortunate, uh, horrific events in Orlando and then before that San Bernardino and Paris and anywhere else you want to choose, uh, kind of keep uh, the fires of uh, elite rhetoric stoked, well stoked. Uh, Donald Trump, <laughs> just the latest, uh, in you know a long line of politicians who jump on every terrorist act as an excuse to continue uh, you know failed intervention in the Middle East so and and Ben's right on neither Donald Trump nor Hillary Clinton is about to embark on a foreign policy of restraint
0: now um, with this uh, 15 years of war we've relied on some fairly outdated documents to justify war just about everywhere uh, but- where we're currently at war, the um, authorization of the use of military force from 2001 and 2002 uh, have both been invoked weirdly and just stretched beyond their breaking point. So what is what role does that play, these authorizations in allowing lawmakers, or specifically the president I guess, to
1: continue to engage in these fights around the world? I think the constitutional principle – is essentially uh, that war should be hard to start. And uh, if you say that a bunch of different campaigns or wars in different places against different enemies can function on the same grant of congressional authority endlessly, uh, it makes wars fairly easy to have or easier. Uh, similarly, to me at least, the, the way we fund the wars through uh, overseas contingency operation funding, which is uh, largely paid for by debt and uh, very flexible in terms of what it allows presidents to do, I think also contributes to the ease at which executives, executive authority can create war without a lot of pushback from Congress. And that uh, definitely contributes. On the other hand, I think there are a bunch of underlying ideas that are held by uh, foreign policymakers about what we ought to be up to in our foreign policy that are probably more important uh, in terms of keeping us in these fights and spending gargantuan amounts of money on defense? Yeah, I think it,
2: if you go back and read the 2001 authorization, it, it is so clearly irrelevant to 99% of what we're doing today. Uh, it's nothing more than a fig leaf. Um, and even Obama knows this and he's sort of changed tax and decided to ask Congress for authorization, you know, uh, cynically knowing it, they weren't going to bother uh, and he wouldn't be in any way restricted from doing anything he decided to do. And unfortunately, as he wraps up his tenure, he's actually ramping up uh, intervention in Afghanistan and other places. So um, the authorization, it's irrelevant, sadly, and it shows that unfortunately that the executive branch is an extremely powerful agent right now.
1: Yeah, the, the, you know, the, the old phrase is that the Constitution ought to be an invitation to struggle for the privilege of directing U.S. foreign policy. And in many ways, the question is, why has Congress ceased to struggle? Why is it, you know, it's, it's supposed exactly. to selfishly protect its powers and that its selfish action, its, it's grab for power will create checks and balances. And, and the system in that sense is malfunctioning. Congress isn't struggling. And Part of what I'm interested in, what other people working on this restraint project are interested in is why I think a lot of it has to do with U.S. power and safety in, a, in an ironic sense in the sense that we don't pay really high costs of these wars. They're so cheap uh, that the public can remain kind of disinterested uh, and the issue isn't that salient. So this sort of elite uh, beliefs and the executive branch can kind of do what it wants without a lot of really much democracy in the true sense of the word.
2: Yeah, and Yeah. Let me throw on the fire, um, the role of the news media. Uh, one of the keys to fighting endless wars is, as Ben mentioned, to keep the costs low enough that the public doesn't get upset. One of the ways that you ensure that the public doesn't really even understand what the costs are is you just don't talk about it very much in public. So you rarely hear Obama talk about what the military – he doesn't announce new troops going overseas, nor does he talk about drone strikes, nor does he talk about bombing campaigns or any of these sorts of things. And so the news media, because they essentially just like to report what people say, not what they should be saying, um, the news media is not helping very much uh, to inform the public.
0: Trevor And, and the, you mentioned drones. This is one of a few methods to reduce the visibility and cost of war so that people don't pay that much attention to it.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, over there is a long way away to begin with. And when uh, there are few people involved, there's no one even to come back and tell you stories. Uh, So it's, you know, drones are a pretty effective way of keeping things uh, quiet.
1: Also with drones, I think there's a sort of a mismatch in terms of the timing of the perceived benefits and costs. So even if you think there are costs, uh, they tend to be longer range. They tend to be blowback The argument is, which I think is basically right, that, you know, this creates a lot of resentment in the long term, which can create anti-Americanism, and even uh, fuel uh, violence, terrorism against the United States. Uh, That's certainly true in some cases. Uh, And some of the other costs are erosion of sovereignty, maybe, in terms of how we operate uh, the drones. And also, arguably, there's a kind of a slippery slope problem where the drones get us involved in fights without winning them. So it becomes long-term pressure to escalate to really solve the problem. But those are sort of down-the-line problems that are hard to uh, get into the current politics, whereas the benefits, such as they are, which is a bunch of dead guys who were terrorists uh, before the drone fired at them, uh, at least much of the time, uh, the benefits are fairly evident right off the bat. So it's I think it's hard for politics anywhere in the United States to, to make smart public policy when you have that mismatch. So um, in terms of raising perhaps the... Uh, cost, at least in the
0: public's eye, what are – my mind, of course, goes to war tax. Uh, thinking about actually making a lot of these costs explicit and visible to the public, at least the dollar uh, costs, is, is that anywhere on the table or under discussion anywhere outside of this room? I think you <laughs> may be the only person uh, to talk about it publicly. Okay.
1: Bernie, Bernie Sanders uh, hasn't said much about his presidential campaign, but he did – Uh, Following on previous efforts from other senators uh, propose a war tax. I think you could have a war tax or a war uh, requirement for an offset for war spending. So there's a way to write it, uh, legislation that says you have to pay for the wars. It can be through a tax previous in a different bill that comes before that explicitly says it's going to pay for this or it could say you have to have offsetting cuts from something else and uh, that way you have sort of a fight at least to some extent. Uh, in Congress for, because presumably you're gouging some other important interest uh, and uh, you at least kind of have to weigh the trade-offs. Right now, because we fund wars through overseas contingency operation funding, which is outside the budget caps that are on the Department of Defense, this is the only part of the defense budget uh, military spending. Uh, that can be paid for at the moment with, with the deficit and uh, with debt and I think that's actually kind of backwards. I think you, 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 ideally, you, even if you didn't have a defense cap on regular defense spending, uh, I think you'd want to put it particularly on war spending because we mm-hmm. tend to not feel the cost now at least for these sorts of drone wars. But
2: So that, that's a corollary, Ben, to, to your phrase, wars should be hard to start and wars should be hard to pay for.
1: Yeah, and unfortunately they're not and in either case certainly harder. But harder. I think yeah, the fundamental problem even is not going to be solved by the war tax because uh it may help a little, but the or, or offset requirement because uh it's so cheap that even that won't be felt particularly. So what you're talking about then is is placing pretty
0: much all military spending into the co, co- relatively coherent framework of federal budgeting and Make that one of the things that's on the table when people argue about taxes and spending.
1: Yeah, uh, get it, get it into the debate and, and sort of try to make it as much as possible a felt cost. Have people's skin in the game, so to speak. Yeah,
2: yeah. A more creative solution might be to um, dock congressional salaries. Uh, for every billion dollars they spend on war, they take a hit to their salary. I mean, back in the the old, old days, I I believe in Greece, uh, you you know, senators and stuff had to uh, spend their own money to go to war Um, and, you know, heck. Uh, you know, looking for help in some strange places. I think Michael Moore asked members of Congress if they'd be willing to send their own children to Iraq. Um, and, you know, our all-volunteer force doesn't doesn't help either because it, again, by taking only volunteers to go fight overseas wars, most of the public is safe from ever having to worry about the danger of warfare. And, and the reality of wars is just very, very distant.
0: Is the, the end of conscription part of the problem here? I mean, uh, Rand Paul, of course, uh Uh, seized on a moment because Muhammad Ali from my hometown, Louisville, uh, he – Rand Paul decided after his passing that he would try to get rid of the draft entirely and most American families don't feel that that
1: risk. Get rid of selective service entirely. Yeah. I mean we're – I I think that – I think that's actually a a pretty good idea. But uh, I agree, actually. I I don't think it's good to have a draft for a bunch of reasons. Uh, I don't think we want to take all those, I don't think we want to force that many people to do something they don't want to do. I don't think we want to take all those people out of the labor force. I don't think the military wants to run on uh, conscripted labor. On the other hand, I think what you say is true. Uh, People are more likely to oppose wars if they or somebody they're close with is likely to serve. We got pretty good data on that, uh, studies on that from Vietnam. So uh, I think in general, it's a good thing that we got rid of the draft, but the cost of that was that it made wars a little harder to start and the public a little more likely to remain apathetic about them. Although even Vietnam, you know, it took the public quite some time and a lot of dying before the opposition uh, increased.
2: Yeah, and again, that goes to show how important the elite consensus about something is. In the early days of Vietnam, both Democrats and Republicans were in full support and the public went along as you know they should in a sense. Um, and the same thing is true today to a large degree that the, the public sees the cues from both Democrats and Republicans as being very pro-intervention and so they don't question too much. Uh, again, since all the costs are distant and, and far away, there's no real reason to complain.
0: Since World War II, uh, there has been, and correct me if I'm wrong, a fairly steady decline in the number of uh, members, a share of members of Congress who had been in the military. What impact does that have on the willingness to sort of, one, stand by and let the executive do whatever it wants with respect to war, and two, actually... Uh, voting to authorize or being a little more circumspect in uh, evaluating a proposal to go to war?
2: I think the number one problem is just plain old ignorance. Um, you know, Civilians always have difficulty uh, controlling the military because of the lack of technical expertise. It's hard to tell a general he's wrong when he says we have to bomb so and so in order to get such and such a result. Uh, And when you have a a Congress entirely full of people who have never served, um, there's really (laughs) they have no way to challenge a president coming at them with all sorts of, you know, intelligence and and arguments from the them from the military. And so I think that that's a big problem. And the second thing is there's also some data on this from various polls. Um, people who have never served are much more hawkish than military uh, officers. And so, you know, I, I like to call these people chicken hawks, uh, people who've never served, but who find every military intervention very attractive. Um, and you wonder, don't you, what they would think had they served, uh, you know, 10 or 15 years in the military.
0: Well, let's talk about uh, some of the the candidate statements on general philosophy to the extent that we can figure out what that is on military intervention. Hillary Clinton, I'd like to joke, supported uh, 10 of our last six interventions. Uh, uh, Donald Trump is, d- depending on what day you're, you're talking to him or what moment we are in uh, his speeches, it's not clear what he thinks about things. Uh, Gary Johnson seems like a fairly standard, down-the-line uh, libertarian who— argues to get Congress more involved as, as I know you guys advocate. So uh, who would be the most likely to get us into additional uh, fights
1: around the world? Well, I think that uh, Hillary Clinton was right in her big foreign policy speech recently to say that Trump's judgment about foreign policy is problematic. Uh, However, her record in foreign policy is problematic, Uh, so uh, I would in no way uh, come to the defense of Donald Trump. I will just say that uh, Hillary Clinton for her political career, uh, even at times when it probably wasn't the politically smart thing to do. Uh, what has been a hawk. She's been reflexively hawkish. There's an article recently saying uh, with some, I, I found it fairly convincing, an article in the New York Times talk, called Hillary the Hawk saying this is a really a heartfelt thing. It's not political uh, positioning. So, uh, you know, Trump is hard to predict uh, what's going to happen if he were president. But certainly it seems pretty likely that Hillary uh, would be hawkish, would be hawkish in Syria, would be hawkish in Afghanistan, would be hawkish uh, in blustering uh, towards Russia uh, and uh, doing freedom patrols and that sort of thing in uh, Asia. So uh, I'm, I, my money would be on her if we could live in all three counterfactual realities and gamble on it. And no question. Hillary is going to be
2: Obama plus. Um, everything Obama has done, she would do better, um, but backwards and in moderately sized heels probably. But she, she terrifies me. Um, And I just I see all manner of bad things. I I see another, you know, 10 or 15 years of struggling in the desert if we elect Hillary. Donald uh, Trump is so inconsistent. He's kind of like Schrodinger's candidate Um, in this box. He advocates smashing ISIS in this box. He says, let's get out of the Middle East and let other people do it. No idea what he would do. Um, Yeah, I'm terrified to find out. uh, But I, I cannot imagine he would be as consistently interventionist as Hillary Clinton because I just don't think he cares that much about foreign policy. I think he cares a lot more about bluster and winning and domestic issues than
0: he does about foreign policy. So let's talk about this elite consensus then. Where did it come from? (laughs) I mean it it seems very, very uh, striking that it is often so at odds with uh, the public and it seems consistent to be— well, we got to be in there. We got to be involved. We need – the United States needs to be a part of whatever the the problem
1: is around the world. I think that uh, a lot of it is it, there's a particular interpretation of history. Now, I think the interpretation of history is itself probably an outgrowth of the opportunity we have with all our power and military capacity to go around the world and do things and how that affects us over time. But the interpretation of history is basically we made a terrible mistake after World War One by uh, – not being involved in European politics, not having military forces there that contributed to the rise of Hitler and the Nazis in Germany. We were too slow to react to that. Uh, we, may, we did the right thing subsequently after World War II in starting NATO and uh, responding uh, to the Soviet Union. And uh, we learned th- from that experience that activism works. I think in some ways though, Certainly, we overlearned the lessons of the Cold War, which is my look at history, which I think has a lot of basis among historians, is the Cold War didn't have to be so global. It was really a struggle about Europe and Germany, uh, a lot of what we did around the world was uh, tragic and probably irrelevant to what ultimately happened, and so not everything that contrib- or not everything that happened during the Cold War that the United States did contributed to the outcome. But the sort of way uh, the consensus in, in Washington looks at it says, well, yeah, it was activism all around that did it. It was fighting for freedom. It was standing up for freedom in every corner of the globe, forgetting that it wasn't initially really about. Uh, ideology. It was about Germany and the threat to it. So it's sort of the 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 way uh, le- the lessons of the Cold War were learned during the Cold War and after.
2: Yeah, and I think you know, interestingly, when you look at uh, public opinion polls and you slice support for internationalism by education, what you find is that the support for internationalism is the highest among the most educated. And so I think what's interesting is about the propagation of this elite consensus uh, over the decades is really it's transmitted through um, college, you know, university and especially folks who go on and get graduate degrees and become leaders in government and other institutions uh, or, you know, even business and so on. Um, There's – and, you know, I'll even – Call it an East Coast bias. Uh, I think there are uh, the the redoubt of internationalism is is the sort of Northeast, and that's where most of the leaders in the U.S. go to school, and then they get the party line in in college, and they come out being pretty uh, heavily disposed to supporting that line.
1: It's really true in my experience. You know that, that when I went to college, uh, and even to some extent, it, if uh, not. PhD school, but uh, when you're looking at graduate programs, you do have the sense that nice, polite people believe in the utility of the NATO alliance forever, and only kind of isolationist hicks would, would uh, question NATO. That, I mean, I remember kind of feeling that. It was, it was kind of the polite social thing to be before a lot of the US commitments around the world, and the sort of idea that we're the provider of security, and to the extent that's true in universities, it's even more true in uh, not this little corner of Washington, D.C., but uh, most of Washington, D.C., where I really think there's, uh, because of the way these uh, commitments and wars even have been justified and sold over time, there's it's been very socialized among the people uh, who are ambitious and want to serve in parties, and people understand for professional reasons that you, know, you don't go around saying certain things if you want to be uh, you know, Secretary Friedman or undersecretary Friedman or whatever. So it's, it's, it's a combination of I think arguments that were made, uh, and then how they were learned over time, over decades,
0: and being going along to get along in order to in this environment of the Washington D.C. Absolutely. foreign policy establishment.
2: Absolutely, right. Although I think one of the things that you know makes this an interesting time for people. Arguing for the restraint perspective as we are, uh, it, you know, I think you know Ben and I are working on an edited volume right now, looking at the case for restraint. We've just had this wonderful conference here at Cato about it, and just like after Vietnam, where extended disaster and failure of U.S. foreign policy led finally led academics to start questioning the consensus, um, the same is happening now, and so. Ben and I are able to talk to a growing group of scholars and, and intellectuals who are questioning this knee-jerk internationalism. And I think the the coalition for a more restrained foreign policy is growing relatively quickly. And, and we hope our project will help add fuel to that fire.
0: When we evaluate the sort of neoconservative project of educating a lot of people and getting those people into these uh, positions, it... Seems or should have seemed like that was revealed to be deeply flawed, uh, but I don't see a lot of that uh, represented. The idea of well, boy, neoconservatism really had some problems with it with respect to how it evaluated foreign conflicts. But I, outside of the uh, groups that we run with, it's it's hard to see that uh,
1: bubbling through. I, I think that. This is a complicated subject, but democratic societies are probably better at evaluating themselves than non-democratic societies, liberal democratic societies. We have free press and so forth. Uh, That said – liberal Demo- this liberal democratic society uh, it, which is maybe as good as any society at evaluating its own uh, successes and failures is across the board pretty terrible at it and uh, when you tend to get actually sort of moment at least certainly in foreign policy moments of reflection and critical evaluation of ideas that got you into trouble tends to be rare occasions where fairly disastrous things happen but one of the consequences of the united states being so rich and so powerful uh, and so far from danger is that really bad things don't happen to the United States very often in foreign policy. I mean, as awful as 9/11 was, even uh, it was you know a small sliver of something that might have happened on a day of World War II in terms of the amount of people killed, uh, even though the shock was greater. Uh, and uh, you know the Iraq War is is similar. It's an awful war. It created a fair amount of reflection, but. Uh, It wasn't the sort of society uh, reforming cataclysm that, you know, European uh, states experienced uh, after world wars and so forth. And that's a good thing. It's good to be in the position that you don't have to learn these horrible lessons. But it also means that we can get away with doing really dumb things for a long time and not really feel the cost of them and not kind of have a – focused debate about where we made mistakes. So I think that's how you get this kind of. Over time, we've built up a pretty strong uh, set of ideas about foreign policy, or that are largely wrong, but uh, they aren't held to be wrong because they, they. We just kind of drift along, being rich and safe and powerful.
2: That's exactly it. And I, the thing that cr- just drives me nuts is uh, a president will be, you know, motoring along, minding his own business, doing the right thing by not intervening let's say, in Syria. Uh, and then something terrible will happen in Syria, something else terrible will happen. And and opponents of the president will jump on those things and play the blame game and just act like the president, it's his fault for not preventing or stopping those things from happening or taking retribution on someone for those things happening. Uh, and because the U.S. is so safe and powerful, y- you can make these assertions and arguments and you can even go do the dumb thing that you didn't really need to do,
1: Um, it it just creates a a
2: cycle of very irresponsible politics basically.
1: It's a strange and wild thing to be at war in seven nations, uh, bombing or having troops in seven countries. Uh, which, by at any historical time, is a lot. You know, I mean, what we had, we were at war in more places during World War II, but uh, it's a lot of places. Uh, granted, we're not doing that much in a lot of them compared to what we might be doing given all the forces we have. But still, to be at war in seven countries and have the main criticism of the president not only from Republicans but even from his likely successor, Hillary Clinton, uh, the main criticism be that he's been too soft and too weak. It's kind of wild, I mean it's – I think it's difficult for Americans to to take a step back and look at things that way, but if you said, Look, you, you know in forty years your country's going to be at forty years ago, your country's going to be at war in seven places, and everybody's going to be uh, knocking the president for being such a surrendering uh, weakling, it, it would be surprising, I think
2: It's actually inconceivable I mean I, I, there's no way I would have ever imagined.
0: All right, gentlemen, we're going to leave it there. If you'd like uh, to dig deeper into uh, these kind of issues, you can watch or listen to uh, the conference recently held on June 15th, uh, The Case for Restraint in U.S. Foreign Policy, a day-long conference at the Cato Institute. Trevor Thrall and Ben Friedman, uh, thank you. Patient-centered healthcare starts primarily in giving patients control over money, which gives them control over services and exposes them to the true costs of competing products. At a policy forum in May, publisher Steve Forbes discussed how healthcare economics helps drive the economy.
3: The economy is in a rut. And there's a lot of talk these days about the new normal, that we must accept this uh, below average uh, situation. Larry Summers, former Treasury Secretary, former Harvard uh, President, who knows what he'll be if the Democrats get in again, talks about secular stagnation as if some alien forces come along and uh, there's nothing we human beings can do about it. It's all nonsense. The rut that we're in today, which is having profound implications around the world, uh, bad economies lead to bad politics, we see that everywhere around the world, It comes from mistakes, and the nice thing about policy errors is they can be corrected. Those errors can be corrected, and that's why we wrote the book, Reviving America. We focus on three big reforms. Obviously, there are a lot of other things that have to be done, but you have to have priorities. So we prioritized on health care, on a new tax code, and getting our monetary system back on track for the first time in almost half a century. Health care is an obvious one, makes up almost 20% of the economy, but also it's the most personal thing possible. Much more than taxes and the like, health care for us, for our families, our friends, our loved ones. So this leads to the question, why do we have a crisis in health care? It's not the quality of health care in this country, overall it's the best in the world. You can see it in cancer survival rates. Western Europe has many fine medical institutions. But in terms of survival rates, that is five years. I had it several years ago. In terms of five years, you do much better in this country than you do anywhere else in the world. Some say it's because there's too much demand. People like me are getting older. We want more health care services. Therefore, the prices keep going up and the system goes kablooey. But just step back for a minute and ask yourselves, why is demand for health care considered a crisis? Whereas demand for anything else in this economy is considered a great opportunity. Uh, people want more enlightenment. Cato will be glad to help out. Is that good, Peter? A little sucking up? Yeah, good. Trying to make sure I get my free lunch after this. And, and in terms of apps, you want more apps? Writers glad to help you out. You want more cars? Detroit and other manufacturers glad to come to your assistance. So why is demand for health care considered a disaster as demand for anything else in this economy is considered a great opportunity? The answer is we don't have real free markets in healthcare; It's all third party dominated. The real customers are government, insurance companies, and employers. The patient is at the end of the line. Proof of it is because we've grown up with this system, we don't realize how peculiar it is. You go to a... Clinic or hospital, and you ask in advance what the treatment's going to cost, get a very strange look. It means one of two things, either you're uninsured or you're a lunatic. Why would you want to know the price? What's it to you? Don't worry about it. Insurance will cover it. Then we'll tell you how much you owe at the end of the thing, but just be passive about it. Another proof of it is the crummiest motel in America wouldn't dare put you in a room with another guest, a sick guest with a curtain in between, as they routinely do in a hospital. Robes, you go to a hospital, they look like they, the robes they give you uh, look like they came from a Salvation Army dump, you know, a a dumpster, that these things that humiliate you, can't get around you. And so the problems when you have this top down system, third party payer system, almost Soviet style system, is they always try to cure the problems with more regulations, but it's like whack-a-mole. One problem comes up, you whack it, 10 other problems come up, whack, whack, whack. Which is why doctors and hospitals spend more time filling out forms than practicing medicine. Why we're having a doctor shortage. No one is happy with the system we have today. Medical costs are still going up. You go to a hospital, that's bad enough, but people, it's a very unsatisfying experience. You wonder, do the hospitalists, as they call them, talk to each other? Do the specialists talk to each other? You tell them, Aunt Tilly can't have this kind of medication, they give it to her anyway. Uh, it's an unsatisfying experience. Uh, deductibles, under the so-called Obama health care exchanges. Yes, you may get the insurance, but the health care becomes more unaffordable than ever because you have $500,000 deductibles. not quite that bad, but it's become out, out of reach. And so normally in a free market, best practices are quickly imitated. You know, iPad, iPhone comes along. Samsung and others say, oh, we've got a better device, a more improved device. You don't get that kind of thing in hospital. I'll just give you one quick example. Breast cancer. You're supposed to have mammograms to discover breast cancer. Well, it turns out if a woman has dense breast tissue, and half the women do, the mammogram and the so-called improvements on it don't discover it. They only discover it one-fourth of the time. There's a new practice out there, new, new treatment called molecular breast imaging, where they put a tracer in, and it will find breast cancer in women. That's why many times a woman has a mammogram, says, oh, you're, you're great. Then a month later, they find out they have a tumor the size of a baseball. Why why didn't they find it? Because now you'd think that something like uh, the, this new way of discovering breast cancer, molecular breast imaging, MBI, which Mayo and, and a handful of others have been pushing, would be quickly imitated and saying, this is the way to go. No. So if you have a mammogram, ladies, insist on MBI, because otherwise you may miss it. So the key thing is in healthcare, the key thing is, and we outline it in the book, is getting the patient in control again for the first time ever. As you know, the system came about because of World War II, wage and price controls. They couldn't pay people because of labor shortages, because everyone was going in the armed services, young people, so they had to pay pay people in kind. Government said you could do it with benefits rather than cash, Then after the war in the 50s, IRS made a tax ruling that embedded the thing. So we have this crazy system today. And so the thing about free markets, as you know, always turns scarcity into abundance. We see it in what we used to call cell phones. As you know, the first one from Motorola 30 years ago, big as a brick, uh, weighed like a brick, big as a shoebox, a 40 minute battery life, first one $3,995. Now there are billions of them around the world. They almost give them away depending on the uh, plan you have. Smartphone, $100, about to go down to $50. Scarcity into abundance, how do we get that in healthcare? We outlined some of the basic reforms. One would be nationwide shopping for health insurance instead of having all these state cartels. Have hundreds of companies compete for your business, equalize tax treatment. If a self-employed and businesses get a tax deduction, why shouldn't uh, uh, patients and individuals have it or have equalize it? How about transparency? How about having hospitals post prices and clinics post prices for all their services? So one, one charges $2,000 for an MRI, another one 350 Have transparency, how about requiring transparency on how many patients die from infections received after they're admitted to a hospital? It's a national scandal. No restaurant could get away with that. Chipotle didn't kill anyone, thankfully, but uh, the stock and company took a huge hit, but yet thousands of patients die unnecessarily in our hospitals.
0: President Obama has been heard to worry about leaving a loaded weapon lying around for future presidents, but it doesn't seem that he's all that interested in tyrant-proofing the White House before his departure. At a Cato Institute Capitol Hill briefing in May, Republican Representative Jeb Hencerling of Texas discussed the atrophied powers of Congress against the beefed-up executive branch.
4: Thank you very much for inviting me here today. I'm always happy to accept uh, any invitation uh, from Cato. And as a struggling student at Texas a and University many lifetimes ago, I answered another invitation to Cato and actually invested $25 a year as a sustaining member so that I could uh, receive your Cato journal. And as I frequently said, that was honest-to-God college beer money that I gave up to be associated (laughs) with Cato, so you know about my commitment to the cause of liberty and how I have always appreciated an association with um, Cato. Um, So we are here to explore the question of whether or not the growth of the executive branch is, quote-unquote, a loaded weapon threatening our constitutional separation of powers, you need not peek to the end of the remarks to know that the answer is emphatically, unequivocally, and tragically yes. Many of you have uh, heard this story uh, before, uh, but at the dawn of the Republic during the Constitutional Convention at its conclusion. uh, Franklin left Independence Hall, and a lady was known to shout from him afar, Mr. Franklin, what kind of government have you given us? Most of you know the answer, a republic if you can keep it. Unfortunately, we have not done a very good job in keeping faith with the Founders' vision of the republic, and it remains an open question. Will we be able to keep the republic in an era where the separation of powers has waned? Instead of having a limited federal government operating from clearly defined enumerated powers, we now have a Leviathan that has metastasized into the nation's largest creditor, debtor, lender, largest employer, property owner, tenant, insurer, healthcare provider, and pension underwriter, and the list goes on. Instead of having firmly committed checks and balances, we now have the president's infamous pen and phone, Regrettably, he does not seem to have a copy of the Constitution. Instead of three co-equal branches of government, we have seen the rise of the unaccountable fourth branch of government, namely agency government. Our woeful neglect of America's first principles clearly predates the Obama presidency. And regrettably, uh, the uh, decline has occurred during the administration of both Democrats and Republicans. But there can be no denying that the wounds to our Constitution have grown markedly worse during Barack Obama's time in office, and I would argue is soon to reach crisis proportions. As a member of Congress, clearly I have no more important job or sacred duty than fealty to the Constitution, yet I do not recall a time in my lifetime when the Constitution was more under assault than it is today. Just in the last few years we have seen our president unilaterally create new law, annul existing law, and even declare the Senate in recess when it was not so that he could install political functionaries into top government positions. Clearly that whole advice and consent foolishness can be such a bother to a chief executive. The devotees of this governing philosophy of the presidents, so at odds with America's founding principles, call themselves progressive, as you know. But as my good friend and our current speaker, Paul Ryan, has said, quote, the ironic thing about progressivism is that it is terribly old fashioned. For progressives believe only a certain class of people, a class to which they, of course, belong, have the duty and responsibility to hold political power and govern over the rest of us. We must yield to their expert management for our own good, because as one architect of Obamacare infamously said, the rest of us are just too stupid to know better. So how could we possibly know what health care plan is best for us, what kind of mortgage we need, or how much water we should put into our toilets? To progressives, the Constitution is such an inconvenience. Herbert Crowley, a leading voice of the early progressive movement and co-founder of the New Republic magazine, said as much when he stated, the progressive vision of government quote, legislates without being a legislature, it administers without being an executive, it adjudicates, but without any power of attaching final construction to the law. It is simply a convenient means of consolidating the divided activities of the government for certain practical and social purposes. James Madison in Federalist No. 47 had a uniquely different take on this notion when he wrote, quote, the combination of all power, legislative, executive, and judiciary in the same hands may justly be pronounced the very definition of tyranny. The seed of this form of tyranny was planted during the Wilson administration. It bloomed during FDR's New Deal, became overgrown in LBJ's great society, and has now reached crisis proportions under President Obama. This century-long progressive expansion of unconstitutional government has unleashed the modern regulatory state as we know it, extremely powerful, exceedingly intrusive, imperiously opaque, baffingly bureaucratic, and alarmingly unaccountable. Now, Congress has not been, regrettably, an innocent bystander during all of this. The stability of our system of government depends upon our representative, transparent, and accountable Congress to make its laws. As we all know, Article I, Section One of our Constitution states, quote, all legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress. Yet for years, Congress has outsourced more and more of its legislative authority to a faceless, nameless, unaccountable bureaucracy. This self-enfeeblement has not only allowed Congress to escape blame when these regulations go bad, it has trampled on the power of we, the people, by giving these Washington bureaucrats huge swaths of power over the lives and livelihoods of our fellow citizens. When Congress allows its authority to be usurped, the people's right to both self-government and due process is undermined. Instead of being governed by the rule of law, citizens increasingly become governed by the rule of rulers. The citizens' right to carefully deliberate proposed legislation through their representatives in Congress becomes reduced to nothing more than a mere notice and comment period where they are permitted to merely lodge complaints and suggestions, all of which the unelected bureaucrats are free to ignore, all of which the unelected bureaucrats may use to retaliate. The result, we now have federal agencies that are legislature, cop on the beat, judge, jury, and recipient of the fine all rolled into one. It is OSHA now, not Congress, that governs over workplace safety. It is EPA now, not Congress that governs over our air quality, is HHS, not Congress, that governs over our health care. And most alarmingly, to our economic opportunity and economic liberty, it is the bureaucratic progeny of Dodd-Frank that now rules over our financial opportunity.
0: For decades, economic dynamism and creative destruction powered U.S. economic growth. Now, however, there is evidence that American innovation is declining. Congress, concerned about these trends in entrepreneurship, passed the Jumpstart Our Business Startups Act in 2012 with the intent to make small business funding easier. At a recent Capitol Hill briefing, Thea Brooke-Knight, Associate Director of Financial Regulation Studies at the Cato Institute, discussed the JOBS Act's provisions.
5: As we came out of the crisis, there was this pressure on uh, small businesses. Their, the, their traditional source of capital, uh, the small business loan was really declining anyway. Um, there was an overall credit crunch. It was just difficult for everybody of any kind to get credit. And there is one other piece that I think has not gotten as much attention as maybe it should, which is that this crisis originated in the housing sector. When you go to get a small business loan, if your company has real estate or has machinery that can be used as collateral, you can post that to secure your loan. Um, if your business is not that type, then what business owners typically wind up doing is posting their family home as collateral. Now, if your house is underwater, you have nothing to post. So you have these people who want to start businesses. It's a very American thing to say, well, look, I lost my job. I'm going to go start my own business. And we want to encourage that kind of entrepreneurship. And yet there was a real dearth of capital in the markets exactly when we needed it. So with this as a background, um, I'd like to dig into the specific portions of um, of the JOBS Act. So if we move next to the IPO on-ramp, if you know anything about stock at all, you know about IPOs. You know about public offerings. Um, These are usually a very big undertaking. Um, They require a lot of money, mostly because you need to pay lawyers um, and accountants. There are a lot of disclosures that are involved with this. Um, Pretty much the process of going public is taking all of your company's information and putting it out there for investors and the market to see. And you have to do it in a very specific way to make sure that it complies with all of the financial regulations and the securities laws. So then you need to hire lawyers and accountants and underwriters who take a cut um, in order to do one of these offerings. And so usually this is when you're looking at, you know, tens of millions of dollars is when companies tend to look to IPOs. So... The first act, the first title of the JOBS Act was looking at trying to make the IPO more attractive, especially to smaller companies. Um, It actually applies to a very wide range of companies. Um, I think the cutoff is one billion in annual revenue, which, you know, if you have a billion in annual revenue, you're not a small business. But um, it's going to be attractive, some of the changes were designed to be attractive to smaller companies looking at IPOs as well. Um, So some of the key features, are uh, a phased-in disclosure process. So um, Sarbanes-Oxley increased a lot of the disclosures that are necessary for uh, companies going public and their ongoing disclosures. One of the big features of the IPO on-ramp is allowing companies to do a scaled uh, disclosure process. So you can do fewer disclosures when you start. And then, you know, over a period of years, you start to ramp up to do the entire disclosure process. That's why it's an on-ramp. Another feature that has become very popular is a confidentiality provision. So one of the parts of going public is that you're public now. Um, Your company secrets, your financials, your business model are all going to be available for investors to look at, but also for your competitors. Um, And this means that going public is a big risk. There's not only the risk of... You know, are you going to actually sell out your issue? There's also the risk of now the entire world knows how you do things um, and knows exactly the financial condition of your company um, and any of your IP that hasn't been fully patented yet. So this is something that companies uh, may feel a little bit unsure about. So you're going to go out, you're going to do this IPO, um, because of the way the securities laws work in the past you hadn't you'd have to do all of your filings and make all of these disclosures make all of this information public before you know how well your IPO is going to do and so that's a big risk so one of the things that the IPO on ramp does is it allows you to do to start the process confidentially and to do a uh, testing the waters so that you can go out and you know, talk to some investors and see what institutional interest is in your offering before you go through the final process um, of doing your IPO. The IPO on-ramp provided some interesting data for us. If you're interested in finding out what investors actually care about. So a lot of companies, even though they would be eligible to provide only two years of audited financials, actually were providing three years of audited financials. And the reason for that is that that's what investors wanted. And so that was the market telling the issuers what they wanted, and the issuers were responding. There was no uh, regulation requiring that third year, and yet they were still providing it because that was what they needed to do to get investors to buy. Um, And we also saw that many of the offerings that did not provide three years of audited financials were actually underpriced. Um, So there's some great market feedback about what's actually important to investors.
0: American intervention since the Cold War is the story of good, sometimes noble, and thoroughly American intentions coming up against the deeply embedded, often harsh, and profoundly un American realities of places far from the United States. So says columnist Michael Mandebaum in his new book, Mission Failure America and the World in the Post Cold War Era. He discussed his book at the Cato Institute in May.
6: This book is a history of American foreign policy uh, between 1993 and 2014, and it rests on five premises. The first premise is that this was an unusual, perhaps a unique period in the history of American foreign policy, and perhaps in the history of all great powers, in that the United States faced no serious security threats. That meant that this country had an unusually wide range of choice in formulating and executing its foreign policy. Second premise, it used that range of choice to engage in what is misleadingly called nation building. I say misleading because what the United States did actually involved two distinct, although closely related undertakings, One was indeed nation building, trying to create a sense of national community among different peoples. And the other is properly called state building, constructing the institutions of modern governance where they do do not exist. Third, uh, this endeavor, these missions of transformation were common to the three presidential administrations of the period about which I write, those of Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama. And missions of transformation are common to a very wide range of American foreign policies during this period. They are a common thread running through American policy toward and in China, Russia, Somalia, Haiti, Bosnia, Kosovo, Afghanistan, Iraq, and the wider Arab world. The fourth premise is that all of these disparate engagements had a common outcome. They all failed. In none of these places did the United States succeed in nation or state building, and the reason is common to all of them Neither the United States nor any other country, no matter how powerful, has the power actually to create a sense of national community or by itself to build the institutions of modern governance. That has to be done by the people of the country itself. And my theme can be and has on occasion by by me been summarized as It was up to them, and they were not up to it. Fifth and finally, the period the book covers is now at an end. The defining condition is not present. The United States does face serious security challenges. Well, let me say a little bit more about each of the countries that I've mentioned the undertaking of missions of transformation began at the very beginning of the Clinton administration with its China policy. You'll recall that that policy was to link an improved Chinese performance on human rights to trade privileges. Trade privileges were were to be contingent on the Chinese honoring and respecting human rights. And if the communist autocracy in Beijing had complied, that would have represented a transformation of the Chinese political system. But of course, the Chinese didn't. They said no, the Clinton administration quickly backed down and in fact, reversed its policy. The administration had better luck in Russia, where Boris Yeltsin, the first post-communist leader, welcomed American help in constructing a free market economy and a democratic political system. Well, Russia has a rough and ready, although highly imperfect and massively corrupt, market economy. But the initiatives in the direction of democracy that Yeltsin undertook have all been rolled back by his authoritarian successor, Vladimir Putin. The failure of the mission in Russia was not the fault of the United States. It was due to shortcomings in Russia itself, the autocratic political tradition, the lack of any democratic experience in Russia's history, the accident of Yeltsin's successor being a firmly anti-democratic person, and the dependence of Russia on energy resources. Russia is a petrostate, state and for a variety of reasons, as many of you know, certainly the, the gentlemen to my right and left know, petrostates tend not to be democracies. Well, the Clinton administration also embarked on so-called humanitarian interventions in Somalia, in Haiti, in Bosnia, and in Kosovo. And this represented an innovation of sorts in foreign policy. The United States was using military force not to advance American interests, but to advance, to reinforce American values. There were no interests, economic or strategic, in these places. The United States did succeed in every case in removing the cause of the, or at least the proximate (laughs) cause, of the humanitarian crisis, a government that was oppressing its people, although in no cases did this represent a large military achievement. But in the end, the United States did not make any of these countries prosperous or democratic. And in some cases, they were not and still are not even peaceful. Then came the attacks of September 11th, which had a profound impact on American foreign policy. They led to three wars. That the United States would not otherwise have fought. The war on terror, about which John Mueller has written eloquently, and on whose writings I have depended for writing the section on the war on terror, and then the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Afghanistan displayed the same pattern. The United States did remove the Taliban, and for a time the lives of Afghans improved. They have nowhere to go but up. But uh, Afghanistan is still plagued by an insurgency, and if and when the American troops all leave, its future is quite uncertain. As for Iraq, there the United States failed at both nation and state building, and it followed another familiar historical pattern, an older one, one that dates back to the uh, Korean and Vietnamese wars. This is a pattern uh, established in uh, John Mueller's path-breaking book, War, uh, Presidents, and Public Opinion. In all three wars, uh, the American military role started out as popular, but became unpopular as and because American casualties rose. In all three cases, the American public never turned against the professed goals of the war, but the public decided that the price the United States was paying was too high and it wasn't worth doing. Now there are a number of narratives that have sprung up both during and after the Iraq war that take the position that if only the United States had done something differently, if only it hadn't made the mistakes it made, could have achieved a much better outcome. Some argue, for example, that if only Ambassador Bremer hadn't disbanded the Iraqi army, things would have been more peaceful. Others argue that if only President Obama had not followed through on the original commitment by George W. Bush to to withdraw all American forces by 2014, all that followed, including the rise of ISIS, would not have occurred. In the chapter on Iraq, I explain why, and and by the way, Iraq gets its own chapter, there's a whole chapter devoted to Iraq, and I explain why I find these counter narratives unpersuasive. My conclusion, it's of course a matter of judgment, not a matter of fact, but my conclusion that as, that in Iraq, as in other places, America undertook a mission impossible.
0: Political Philosophy, and Introduction is a new online guide published by Libertarianism.org, a project of the Cato Institute. Political philosophy is a primer on major theories of justice, arguments philosophers have made for and against these theories, and how to be more thoughtful and rigorous in our own thinking. You can find political philosophy at Libertarianism.org and at online retailers nationwide. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown talk to you again next month.